You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week four. Today's teaching is on Exodus 19, 1 through 20, 21. Thanks for joining us. Another morning traveling through the wilderness again with Israel. It's been approximately 50 days since that Israel has been wandering around since they've been delivered from Egypt. And here we find them at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 3, in a burning bush, the Lord told Moses that he was chosen for the task of delivering the people of Israel. Moses responds in fear out of his inadequacy to complete this task. We see the Lord respond to him here in Exodus 3.12. He says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Friends, this is that mountain. This is a sign that the Lord promised to Moses and the sign that he has waited for. He has seen the Lord perform all these signs and wonders in Egypt, and he's waited until this moment for the sign that the Lord promised him. And so we're going to see that Moses ascends the mountain. We had you mark in your workbooks all the times that we saw Moses going up and down the mountain. Over and over again, we're going to continue to see this language. Can you imagine this? This man is 80 years old, right? Why are they making this poor man go up and down the mountain over and over again? Why is this important? Well, I'm going to give you the definition of two words that we're going to use as we look at God's relationship with his people. These two words are transcendence and imminence. Transcendence means to go beyond. It is the complete otherness of God. He is beyond all creation. He is more majestic than anything, and he is worthy of all of our wonder and our awe. Imminence means to be entirely within something. It is the idea of God's close and personal involvement with his people's lives. What we're going to see here in the next uh, couple of chapters is that these two seemingly oppositional aspects of God's character are going to be revealed to the people of Israel. They're going to see that God is transcendent, that he goes beyond anything they could imagine. And they are not to take his presence lightly. He is to be feared. This is why Moses must go up the mountain, because God is wholly other. He is high and lifted up, and so Moses will need to go up to him. You saw as you read these chapters that the people were far off. They were not even able to come near the mountain. Moses is ascending as their representative. At the same time, the Lord is going to come down to meet with his people on the mountain. And later, through the tabernacle, we're going to see that he is going to come and dwell in their midst. Moses was invited up to meet with the Lord, and the Lord is going to condescend to meet with his people. Let's look at Exodus 19, 4-6. These are the first words of the Lord from Mount Sinai. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We see that the first half here is a summary of everything that the Lord has done so far in Exodus. The Lord is reminding them that he has brought them out of Egypt, lifted them up on eagles' wings, and brought them to himself for fellowship with him. As Chris said two weeks ago, the Lord did not just free the people so that they could do whatever they wanted. Rather, he freed them for the purpose of his glory. Friends, we too have been delivered from our sin for the purpose of glory. We're not just saved from our sin in order to escape the punishment of hell. We are saved to enjoy and glorify the Lord forever. Now, therefore, because of this, the Lord is asking for Israel's obedience in, as a response to the fact that he has delivered them. It's important for us to grasp this concept before we move on to unpacking the law. God saves his people and then he teaches them how to live for his glory. He does require their full obedience because fellowship with God and rebellion to God's law cannot coexist. This is the same function of the law today. We as believers respond to the fact that we have been delivered by obedience to the Lord and his commands. It's out of a heart of gratitude that we obey him. The Lord then closes with a promise for Israel. They will be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 references this phrase, treasured possession for us. It gives us a better understanding of what is meant. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were in fact the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loved you that he kept his oath, he swore to your ancestors. And he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel is the Lord's treasured possession because of his covenant love and faithfulness to them. It is not because of anything great that Israel has done, but it is because the Lord has graciously set his favor upon them. Israel is also to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As Jenny talked about last week, the Lord has always had the nations in mind, all of them. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests to the nations representing him to the world. They've been set apart to live in worship to him. As the nations see the people living in this peculiar way, they see them bearing God's name, worshiping him, obeying his law. What they're going to see is the wisdom of Yahweh, his character and who he is. The Apostle Paul restates these verses in 1 Peter 2, 9-12. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As believers, we too have been saved out of darkness and into light. Not because of anything great within us, but because the Lord has graciously set his favor upon us. We have received mercy 
and we live our lives in holiness in obedience to him as representatives of Christ. Now we're going to see the people answer the Lord in 19, 7 to 9. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Notice the job that Moses has of mediating between the Lord and the people. He represents the people to the Lord, and then he represents the Lord to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Last week, the people asked the question, Is the Lord among us or not? What we are going to see this week is that as the Lord descends in all of his glory on the mountain, there is going to be no question left in the mind of any Israelite of whether or not the Lord is with them. The Lord tells the people to consecrate themselves because they must not take lightly the glory of the Lord. He is wholly other, and so for for their own protection, he has them set up limits around the mountain. Like the arrival of a king, the people take their stand at the foot of the mountain and prepare to meet the Lord. Did you imagine this scene in your homework as you went through it? Take a moment now, and I want you to close your eyes. We're going to imagine it together. We're going to imagine what Israel must have felt. Imagine the sounds of thunder and trumpets. Feel the thick clouds, the sight of lightning and fire, the smell of smoke, and the tremble of the mountain. Open your eyes. What would you do in response to such a presence? Can you imagine the mixture of terror and awe at the magnificence before them? This display of God's glory is a mere fraction of his holiness. This is how holy other the Lord is from us and how low we are in comparison to his greatness. From the mountain, the Lord speaks to the people. The Lord starts out again with a reminder that they are his people whom he has redeemed. The law is going to reveal for us the nature of the lawgiver. This is true about any law. We make rules about the things that we care about, the things that we place value on. And so just as Israel saw a tangible display of God's character that was revealed to him in the mountain, now they are going to see God's character revealed to them in his law. The Lord starts out by giving what is commonly known as the Ten Commandments. These are the ten words or the Decalogue. They encapsulate the whole law for us. In your homework, we had you separate the commandments into two categories, looking at whether they had vertical implications for our relationship with God or horizontal implications for our relationships with those around us. In the same way, we see that Jesus sums up the law in Matthew 22:40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As you see in this chart, the first four commandments have to do with loving God, our vertical relationship with him. Our group kind of debated this a little bit, but 
for now, we're going to go with this. <laughs> um, the last six have to do with loving people, our horizontal relationship with others. We're going to go through these commandments, and we're going to look for the heart of each command as we had you guys do in your homework. What is God showing Israel about his character in these commands, and how do we see their application in our life today as believers in Christ? You can follow along in your text that we gave you. Um, I'm going to read for you each commandment, but you won't see it on the screen. So you can follow it along there. What you will see on the screen is a shorthand version of that. And as we fill in this chart, I'm going to give you my definition of the heart of the command. It is not the answer inspired from the Lord like scripture, okay? So it's okay if you have something different. Um, but we're going to sum it up in this way. All right, so the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord wants Israel's full allegiance. He is owed it because he is the creator of all things. In him, all things find their origin. He has delivered them from, from Egypt and redeemed them. And unlike Egypt, he alone is deserving of their worship. He is to be their only God. They are not to have many gods like the Egyptians. We are made to worship the Lord alone. But like Israel, in our flesh, we're prone to give our allegiance to other things. Do you remember that old hymn, prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I resonate with that hymn because I often find that in my flesh, I am prone to running after other things. This can happen anytime we pick up a mantra of Jesus plus. Do you know these? Sometimes they put them on t-shirts. Jesus plus coffee or Jesus plus my me time. But oftentimes they go deeper than that. Jesus plus my security or Jesus plus my control. All of these are double allegiances. The Lord wants Israel to have their full allegiance in him. The heart of the first commandment is full allegiance to the Lord. Second command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. This command is a furthering of the previous commands. Breaking any of commandments 2 through 10 starts out with a double allegiance, putting something else before the Lord. In this command, the Lord is prohibiting Israel to make idols, and he goes on to clarify what he means by that. They are to make no idol of anything in the land, in the sea, or in the air. All of these things are created by God. And to suggest that any one of them could depict the Lord accurately is to bring him down into something small. He deserves glory because he is above all things, because he has created all things. We're often tempted to worship God in the way that we want to worship him. Rather than as the way he actually is. We emphasize what we like about God, and we minimize the rest. To make God into a palatable image is to try to bridge the chasm between us and God. This chasm can and only should be bridged by Christ. 
Colossians 1.15 tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Friends, Christ is the image of God that we are to worship. And we as partakers in faith through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit are being molded into Christ-likeness. The heart of the second command is to worship the Lord as he is. This command also comes with a warning. And Ezekiel 18.20 gives us some guardrails as we seek to understand this warning. Ezekiel tells us that a son is not allowed to be put to death for the sins of his father. So what does Moses mean then? He says he will, that the Lord will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. These children have continued to live in the idolatry of their parents. And they also hate the Lord. It is their own sin that condemns them as they walk in the ways of their fathers. Commentator Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or culture or personal history. God will punish the next generation if they continue in the sins of the previous generation. We can see examples of this in the kings that come later in Israel's history. The Lord also gives a promise, though. Here, too, there will be blessings for generations to come of those who love me. The effects of a godly generation bring flourishing on the next generation if they continue to walk in the ways of their father. The third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, we see that the first two commandments are being further played out in the third commandment. The Lord has made a covenant with Israel, and they are to be his representatives to the world. His image is not to be displayed through an idol, but rather through a people group. They will bear his name to the nations. What does this mean practically? They are to be representatives to the world, displaying the character and nature of God. As Israel lives out these laws, they are going to show the world what it means to bear the name of Yahweh. Friends, we too bear the name of Christ. We are Christians. This command is not about swearing. Yes, we ought to revere the name of Jesus, but it has to go beyond lip service. Our entire lives are meant to be an example for the reverence that we hold for the name and the person of Jesus. It is out of a life transformed by the gospel that the Lord has chosen us to, as a means to make himself known. Christ shows us the perfect fulfillment of this law. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. How do we bear the name of Christ rightly? We do so by looking on the Son. Through the work of Christ on the cross and the gift of the Spirit, we are graciously given hearts of flesh so that we can now obey him and bear his name. The heart of the third command is to represent the Lord rightly. The fourth command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Lord is a God of order. Genesis tells us that God created everything in six days, and then he rests on the seventh. Israel is to do likewise. The seventh day rest is a way that they are going to image the Lord. It's a reset to their week, a ceasing from their work, and a reorienting of their hearts to the Lord. Remembering that it is he who has done the ultimate work on their behalf. We are finite creatures. We need rest. It is a, the way that the Lord has created us, and none of us can escape it. We all lay ourselves down at night and sleep. We entrust ourselves to the one who holds the universe. So too, when we cease from our work on the Sabbath, we trust that it is the Lord who holds all things. Just as sleep refreshes us for the coming day, the Sabbath refreshes us by lifting our eyes from earthly things and setting them on the Lord. As believers, we know that the work of salvation was finished for us on the cross. And as we come to the Sabbath, we look on this work. We lay down our efforts as an offering of worship to him. We reorient our hearts to him who has accomplished all on our behalf. The heart of the fourth command is to rest in the Lord. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother, that it may be, that it, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. We're now going to move from our vertical relationship with the Lord to an extension of that in our horizontal relationship with others. How is Israel to live as a covenant community? By loving their neighbor as themselves. Honoring our parents. We often think of this command as being for kids, right? But if we look at the context of the Ten Commandments, what we're going to see is that the primary audience here is actually adults. The Lord gives a promise with this command that it's going to go well for Israel if they obey. The order of the family unit is good for the community. There's a promise here that in honoring their parents, Israel is going to receive long life. This long life is more synonymous with an abundant life or flourishing rather than a number of years. It's not an exact equation, but a principle that as Israel honors their elders, and those who have gone before them, they are going to receive the wisdom of heeding their advice and the wisdom that they have to offer. What does this honoring look like? It might look like care and provision in times of need. It also might look like respect in our words or our attitude or our inner thoughts. In honoring their earthly parents, Israel is showing honor to their heavenly father, who has given the gift of family life and order. We see that Christ both displays and expands this command. In his last moments of life on the cross, he cares for his mother Mary by entrusting her to the, his disciple John. And then we also see that he expands this idea of family to the church body. In Luke 8.21, he says, My mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. We can take from this the idea that we too can expand this, the idea of this command to our church family. We are to honor our spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith. The heart of the fifth command is to honor elders. Commandment number six. You shall not murder. All right. So, let's face it. This feels like the easiest command to follow. I'm 
guessing that none of you have it in your to-do list to murder anyone anytime soon. However, we know that in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to expand this commandment to the heart. He says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, yikes. This one's got me now, and I'm guessing it's got most of us. All right? It is out of our hearts that our actions flow forth. Jaden Wilkins states that our actions are an incarnation of our beliefs. As we're going to see with the rest of the commandments, obedience goes beyond just avoiding the act of murder. We know that God has made man in his image. And so to respect life is to respect the likeness of God. To follow the sixth command, God wants Israel to be for life. After murdering his brother Abel, Cain asked the question, Am I my brother's keeper? Through the law this upcoming week, you're going to see that the Lord's answer to this question is actually yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. The Lord wants Israel to be looking out for one another's lives. And we too, as Christians, are to be looking out for the life of our neighbors. We are to follow the example of Christ who has laid down his life for us. The heart of the sixth commandment is to honor life. You shall not commit adultery. Like the previous command, to understand what this means, to commit adultery, we're going to have to look at the heart. Jesus again tells us in Matthew 5 that the heart of adultery is lust. To lust is to have a passionate desire for something or to yearn after it. Lust is selfish. It seeks to satisfy the self, and it doesn't really care about the object of its desire. Lust treats people as commodities, something to be had or taken. The Lord is calling us to honor marriage. He is establishing a covenant community for his people. And marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife. It protects women who are really vulnerable at this time. And it also puts sexual pleasure inside the bounds of commitment. It establishes structure and order that are good for society. We, too, are, as believers, are to be for marriage. Not just our own marriages, but those of our neighbors as well. In seasons of marriage or singleness, we are called to adhere to God's sexual ethic rather than the desires of our flesh. In Christ, we see the perfect example of this. Christ who displayed perfect marriage fidelity to the church, his bride. The heart of the seventh commandment is to honor marriage. You shall not steal. There are two reasons that people steal, need and greed. The Lord wants Israel to trust him for their needs, to be satisfied in his provision. Think about the manna. He has displayed that he is trustworthy for all that they could possibly need. Theft breaks down a community by creating a possessive culture that is just focused on self. The flip side of stealing is generosity. Israel is to have such a faith in the Lord that rather than hoarding all of their things for a future time of need, they can give generously to those around them, trusting that they will have no lack. God wants Israel to be a covenant community marked by generosity. How do we love our neighbor? By caring for their stuff 
and for giving generously. We can do this knowing that our real treasures lie in heaven and not here on earth. The heart of the Eighth Commandment is to trust the Lord for your needs. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We think of this command as do not lie. But what the text actually says is to not bear false witness. It suggests the idea of a court of law. This command is parallel to the third command, that we're not supposed to represent the name of the Lord falsely. Israel is not to represent their neighbor falsely either. It's in God's nature to be truthful, and he wants his people to likewise display this characteristic. Tearing others down in our speech is a way to elevate ourselves, to try to take control of a situation or a narrative. It puts us in the place of God, and when we lie about our neighbor, we align ourselves with Satan, who is the father of lies. Rather, as image bearers of Christ, we ought to look for ways to build one another up with our speech. Our actions and our speech are an overflow of our hearts. As we do this, we align ourselves with Christ. Christ, who is our faithful witness, our mediator, who gives an honest account before the Father of his work on our behalf. The heart of the ninth commandment is to be people of truth. Commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right, look back over the commands. Are these mainly visible offenses or are they matters of the heart? They're mostly visible offenses, right? Well, what this command is going to show us, this command and the first command, is that all sin begins in the heart. It's an allegiance to something other than God and a desire for something that the Lord has not given us. The Lord wants Israel's heart, not just their actions. We see that this commandment is broken in the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve saw that the fruit was to be desired and she took it. See it, want it, take it. This is the cycle of sin. Our desires always follow our gaze. We will want what we spend our time looking at. And the Lord wants Israel to desire him alone. And so to fight this temptation, they must turn their gaze to the only one who can truly satisfy the desires of their souls. <coughs> we too must turn our gaze to Christ. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalms 27.4. The heart of the 10th commandment is to be satisfied and content in the Lord. In your homework this coming week, you're going to look at the rest of the law through this grid of the 10 commandments. Not all of these laws are going to translate exactly into today. I'm guessing you're not boiling goats in their mother's milk. But what we're going to see is that the heart and the principle of these laws are timeless, right? Because these moral principles are the revelation of God's character, which is unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forever. After hearing these commands, the people tell Moses that he must speak to the Lord on their behalf. They have seen a display of his glory, and what is their response? Unworthiness. They are deserving of death in his presence. 
Hebrews confirms for us that it is right for Israel to feel this way. Moses, when he comes into God's presence in Exodus 3, he hides his faith, face. And Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, he cries out, Woe to me, a man of unclean lips. They know that they cannot go before the Lord themselves. And so they ask Moses to go on their behalf. Friends, we need to see our depravity next to the holiness of God. Our fear of the Lord will keep us from sinning as we look on him rightly. If we're struggling with sin in our lives, more often than not, it is because we are not viewing God for who he is and ourselves for who we are. We don't need to wallow in shame as we see this chasm. But we need to turn in repentance to Christ, who is our mediator of a better covenant. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with reverence and awe at the majesty and the wonder of who you are. Lord, you have created everything and we owe you our full and total allegiance. Lord, we confess that in our flesh we are weak, that we are prone to wander from you, and we thank you for Christ, who is our mediator, Lord, that we can turn in repentance, that his work on our behalf stands between us and you. Lord, we thank you that you have bridged this chasm through the work of Christ on the cross. I pray for the ladies as they walk out of this room today, as they live out their lives in obedience to you, Lord, would they... And I, would we look on you with reverence and awe? Would we remember the gracious work of Christ? And would it fuel our obedience to live in worship to you? In Christ's name, amen.